We've reached 1 Samuel 25, and we will be looking this morning at yet another incident in the life of David on the run. But it is an incident that will help us to live our own lives and serves as a good reminder and contrast from what we have seen in chapter 24. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of this man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat? that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore... Know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. 
Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young man, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell down before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal as so much as one male." Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have granted your voice, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. 
And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that you would open your word to us, that in it we might see the Lord Jesus Christ, that in it we might see the duty that you require of us, that in it, O Lord, we might know you and your character and love you all the more. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. In this book of 1 Samuel, especially in the second half of this book, we begin seeing the character of David. And it's interesting because David is a twofold image for us. On the one hand, he prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ, the true king of Israel. We saw that view of David last week in chapter 24. But on the other hand, David also gives us insight into the believer, into our own lives. And we have that insight this morning in chapter 25. We see that God is at work in the life of David, even in the small details that can be missed. And this reminds us that God in His providence is at work in our lives each and every day, even in the details that we can miss. And so this morning, I would like us to see three things about God's providence, His protective providence. First, we see those who are not seeing God's providence, who miss it. Second, we see the blessing of God's providence, how God blesses His people through His providence. And then thirdly, we see the triumph of God's providence, how the will of God comes to pass through His providential care. Not seeing God's providence, the blessing of God's providence, and the triumph of God's providence. As this chapter opens up, we are given some short news. Samuel has died. Now what this means is, is that David is now really and truly alone. He only has God to lean on. And he is still wandering. Now we are told he is wandering in the wilderness of Paran. 
And as this chapter opens up, we are now introduced to a new character, a new man. He is a wealthy man. He is a well-known man. Even before we know his name, we know about his wealth and his possessions of all of the livestock that he has. Now, we have to understand that in this day and time and place, having this many thousand livestock made you an extremely wealthy man. It was a way of describing the possessions of someone. If we were using this in our modern parlance, we might describe this man this way. He was a man who had two jets, and he had ten cars, and he had a really big house. He was wealthy and had many possessions. And we are told about this man at the most profitable time of the year. It's shearing time in Israel. Now, shearing time was an incredibly joyous and profitable time because in Israel, you did not keep sheep so that you would kill them and eat them, generally speaking. Because sheep grew, as it were, wool on their backs. And the shearers would come and they would shear off the wool and it would be used for the making of clothing. And there's great value in this. Perhaps some of you even have a heavy wool top coat or wool skirt or wool suit. And you know that wool is very good for fabric. It's very warm, but it isn't cheap. Now imagine you were the producer of all this wool. You would be very glad for shearing time. Now, it is intentional that we are introduced to this man through his possessions before we even get his name because his life, we will see, is actually determined by his property. Now, we meet the wife of this man, Nabal, and she is beautiful. Now, you can almost picture it if this were a film. Abigail would come onto the screen and the lighting would be just so. And she would probably turn and she might even do that thing where you flip your hair, where you see and you say, Wow, what a beautiful woman. Now, there's more to Abigail than this also, though. She's not just beautiful, she's wise. She is discerning. I'm, I'm glad for this. I'm, I have to confess I'm very partial to the name Abigail. And so I like to think that all Abigails are wise and beautiful, at least the ones that I know. But she is discerning. The Hebrew is actually very colorful. It says that she is good with insight. As far as insight goes... She's good. She's very discerning. And we're prepared now by this description to see her not just as someone who is smart, but as someone who is wise, who is practical. And her name means, my father is joy. She is a complete contrast to Nabal. And after all, we don't get too far through the chapter before we wonder, Why in the world is she with him? And so two 
Nabal and his household come David with his men and a humble request. Now, David is out in the wilderness. He's trying to support and feed 600 men. Now, what you would normally do if you had a small private army, a pack, a band, is you would live off the populace. You'd find the people who were around you, and you would rob them. And you would threaten them. And you would steal from them. But that's not who David is, is it? David is a true king. And he protects people, because that's what kings do. True kings protect their people. And that's what David does. We actually read in the chapter that David has watched over the flocks of Nabal. He's kept them and the shepherds safe. And so David is trying to find provision for his men, and he sends some young men to Nabal. And he says, go first and explain that we are on good terms together. In verse 7 he says, tell them we've been protecting them. And then he says, remind them in verse 8 that this is a time of plenty, a time of joy, a time of generosity, because that affects the way someone responds to a request. Isn't that true? Have you ever had someone call you on the phone and ask for money or a donation on August 6th when it's 100 degrees outside? Not a lot of patience there, right? But then when someone comes up to you the week of Christmas, what do you say? Well, I'm in a giving spirit. It's, you know, it's that time of year. Everyone should be happy. And if I can help, all right, let me help. Right? It's the time of year. That's what's happening here with Nabal and his people. It's practically Christmas time. Especially knowing who Nabal is, there is no more time There is no time in which he is more excited than shearing time. He could practically count the money. And so David comes and he says, humbly, can you help us with something you might have to spare? That's what David means when he says, can you give us what is at your hand? You don't need to dig deep, Nabal. Just, you've got some extra laying around. Could you help us with what you've got to spare? And so how does Nabal react? Well, spoiler alert, we should already be ready for what he's going to say. Because his name, Nabal, means in Hebrew, fool. It means foolish, senseless. But in the Hebrew, it means more than someone who makes bad decisions. No, it means someone who is a spiritual wreck, who is against God, who is unrighteous. Isaiah describes the Nabal, the fool, this way in Isaiah 32. The fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Nabal is a fool. And a fool is someone who's wicked and who doesn't care about other people 
or God. And so Nabal harshly refuses David. Now, again, let's think about what he says. He says, who is David? Now, he knows who David is. Can't you see that? His next sentence is, who is the son of Jesse? He's insulting David. And then he not only sticks the knife in, he twists it. He says, well, you know, these days, a lot of servants are running away from their masters. Hint, hint, Saul, Saul. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine what that would do to David? Think about it again in the scenario we talked about earlier. Imagine someone calls you and is seeking a charitable donation. And you say to them, not just, well, I'm not in a place right now where I want to make a donation. Thank you very much. Instead, you say, no. And let me tell you what a miserable lady your mother is. And let me tell you how ugly your kids are. And let me tell you what a waste of your, my time you are making. You see... Nabal, even if he would have said no, could have been gracious about it. But instead, he flings insult after insult on David. And we get a vision into Nabal's heart in his answer in verse 11. You may have noticed it when I read it the first time. What is Nabal's heart focused on? Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed? Over and over again, Nabal is telling us it's all about me, myself, and I. He's completely focused on himself. So what does that mean? What is Nabal missing here? What Nabal is missing here is he does not see how God has protected him and his property, even after David has told him. In God's providence, David has been in exactly the place for the greatest benefit to Nabal. He doesn't see that God is giving him an opportunity here to do good to others. Once again, in God's providence, it's perfect timing for Nabal to show good and goodwill to the king of Israel. And he doesn't understand that people are more important than things. So now, we think that Nabal has a problem, right? He's insulted David. And we can just imagine David who's hurt, who's tired, who's frustrated. And this news comes to him and he is quick and unambiguous in his response. The the text is actually emphatic here. Three times the word sword is used. Everyone put on your sword. And they all put on their sword. And David put on his sword. What do you think is going to happen? I can almost see the glint off the swords in the daylight. David is going off to settle this score. He might be saying to himself, does this Nabal know who he's dealing with? I protected him, and now he insults me? I'll show him. But you see, the truth is, David is the one who has the problem here. Because what a change a chapter makes, right? David is now very ready to take vengeance into his own hands. He's driven by this insult to his name, and so he is ready to 
take out his wrath on Nabal in a way in which he refused to do to Saul. Now, it's interesting that there is a parallel here. And it's not pretty for David. The parallel to what David is considering is actually Saul attacking the priests at Nob. You remember that? Saul was insulted that someone might aid someone that he considers his enemy. He was insulted that the priests did not respect him enough. And so he went and he wiped them all out. And that's exactly what David is trying to do. So what is David missing in God's providence? David is not seeing how God has taken care of him and how he will take care of him. David does not see that he is about to fall into sin because he is not guarding against his sin. And just as he previously had done and he was able to instruct others, now he is falling short. And this often happens. A word of warning here and advice. When we have an incident or a time of spiritual success like David had in chapter 24. The irony is is that we begin to think that we can handle things. We begin to say, well, we don't really need God. I just took care of it. I can take care of it again. And we begin to rely on ourselves. And that's what David is doing here. In this chapter, he's sure that he can handle himself. But what David doesn't realize in chapter 25 is that his good name is from God. And it is God who will preserve his good name, not David. Well, we wonder what will happen next in our story, right? Will David destroy Nabal? Will Nabal plead for his life? But our wonder focuses in the wrong area. We need to instead be looking at what God will do, not what David will do. Because God is not out of the picture. The same providence that brought us to this point is at this point. And so we begin to see the blessing of God's providence. Now, what do we mean by God's providence? This word gets used often. In In many instances, people use it as an equivalent of luck. But it's not. Our shorter catechism defines it well. God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Now that's pretty comprehensive, isn't it? It's almost like... God is sovereign over all things. Now, God's providence is sometimes obvious to us. But at other times, it is mysterious like it is here. And that's what happens right here in our story. It's what happens as Abigail comes to our attention. But even before that, God is at work. Because God leaves no detail unattended. Abigail is able to come into our story. Why? Because of an unnamed servant. 
an unnamed servant comes to Abigail. Now, it says something about Nabal and his character that the servant doesn't go to him. He goes to his wife. Now, he tells us why that's the case later. He says, because Nabal is such a worthless fool that he doesn't listen to anyone. And so this unnamed servant comes and sets everything in motion. Now, think about it. Everything depends on this little detail, this unnamed man. He just happened to be there when David's men came. He just happened to overhear what was going on. He just happened to conclude trouble is coming. He just happened to go to Abigail. And she just happened to hear him. No, no, no. None of this is outside of the control of God. God in his providence is orchestrating events to bring about his will. And so this servant speaks to Abigail, and she knows she has to act quickly. In verse 18, she says, get everything together. You can almost imagine. Grab the raisins. Get the, get the, the lambs. Get the food. Get the donkeys. Put them on. we got to go now. There's no time for planning. Who would have thought such a brute would have had such a charming, resourceful, and wise wife. That's no accident either. Abigail is in exactly this place, a place we would not expect her to be because God in his providence has put her there. Now imagine the scene as as it is described as she comes around the mountain where she can hear David before she can see him or he her. Can you just imagine what she would hear echoing over the plain? All right, get your swords. But everybody stay away from Nabal. I'm going to get him. I'm going to cut him in half. And we're going to kill everybody, and we're going to take everything, and we're going to destroy this entire household. Can you imagine what must be going through her mind and her heart? And yet, that tells us that she's the perfect person for the task. She's obviously brave, for she continues on to go to David. But she's also humble. She goes up to David and she calls him, My Lord. It's again the exact opposite of what Nabal does. Nabal treats David with complete disrespect. Abigail treats him with a respect that should look familiar. Have we seen anyone recently get down and bow down, and call someone Lord. We saw that just last week, didn't we? In the way David humbled himself before Saul. And then she is willing to confess the sin that has occurred. And I want you to notice, this is not this kind of half-hearted, milk-toast American apology. You've heard it before. Oh, I'm sorry if you're upset. And you see what's hidden in there? You shouldn't be upset. You're probably dumb for being upset. But since you're upset, I'm sorry you're upset. Doesn't have anything to do with me. But I hope you're not upset anymore. That's how we apologize in our modern culture. She does not do that. She says, the fault is mine 
alone. She takes all of the guilt on herself. And if there's anybody in the whole house that doesn't deserve the guilt, who is it? It's Abigail. The only guilt she has here is she's married to a clod. But yet she confesses the sin. She offers to make things right and she appeals to David's understanding of God. We see this in verse 30. She reminds David the guilt that would come if he goes forward with his plan. And the interesting thing is, if in ancient Israel they had had audio recorders, she could have played David's speech from chapter 24 back to David. Because it's the same point. Do you want to be guilty of blood? Do you want to take someone's life who does not deserve it? Do you want to take the vengeance that belongs to the Lord? She's bringing David's words back to him. She does more than that, though. She reminds him of the promises of God to him. She says, you don't need to do this. You will be king. Your enemies will be defeated. And there's this great touch. Gentlemen, you know how your wives know you well. And they know exactly how to reach to your heart, right? Do you see the little detail she puts in? She says, and your enemies will be slung out as from a sling. Wow. Nice detail. Makes me think immediately of the time when I was a nobody, says David. When I had no band of people. When I wasn't even considered a soldier before any of this happened. And I faced a fearsome enemy and I trusted the Lord and he delivered me. Wow. Maybe I should do that now. Maybe I should trust God. God knows what he's doing. He's blessing me. And this blessing comes not just in the wisdom of Abigail, but it comes in the restraint of David himself. Because before Abigail comes, David is not as he should be. After all, Nabal's done the exact same thing that Saul did to David. And yet David's reaction is exactly the opposite. He swears a rash oath of murder instead of trusting God, instead of patiently waiting on the Lord. And so Abigail is God's providence for David. She is not there by accident. She reminds David of who he is and what is at stake. She reminds him of the promises of God and of his need to trust God. And she tells him that the danger is no less great now than it was in chapter 24. David is in danger once again of taking matters into his own hands and forgetting God. And the Lord uses Abigail to prevent David from becoming Saul. David sees God in this providence. We have to see that this is not just a lucky break that these things have happened. David sees it. Look at verse 32. What's the very first words out of David's mouth? Blessed be the Lord. Not thank you. 
Not blessed be you, Abigail. Blessed be the Lord. Why? Because he sent you to meet me. You see, David sees in the events that are unfolding the hand of God. And that is what we are meant to see. You see, so often we focus on the events, on the circumstances, on what is going on, and we do not see the hand of God in our lives. Beloved, God does not take a vacation from your life. In His providence, He is present all the time in all of the small things of life. And we need to remember this. Because... For David, the promise had not changed. But his circumstances had blinded him to the work of God. And this restraint clearly comes from the Lord. It's something that we need in our own lives. God to restrain us from our own sin. One commentator puts it this way. It is a mark of sincere and genuine godliness to be not less thankful for being kept from sinning than from being rescued from suffering. Now stop and think about that for a moment. We think about God as the one whom we need to rescue us, to get us out of the jam, to help us when we are suffering. But it is just as much a mark of the Christian to know that it is God who restrains us from wreaking our own sin upon the world around us. Providence, we learned last week, is not our Bible. But the providence of God does help us to reinforce the message of the Bible. This is the blessing of God's providence. Well, we've seen two men miss the Lord's providence. One, David, is brought to see it by Abigail. One, Nabal, has no desire to see it. And so what happens then, we should not be surprised by. All the men have narrowly escaped death. And Abigail has completed her quick and dangerous mission. And David is praising God. And what is the fool doing at home? He's home getting stinking drunk. Because Nabal had said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14. And so if there is no God, why should I bother looking for him? Why should I bother looking for his providence? He still thinks he's in complete control. He has gone from insulting David to now insulting God. And so when Abigail tells him this the next day, he is struck by God. The language makes it very clear that what's going on here is he's probably had a stroke and is now paralyzed. Think about what it takes to willfully ignore the Lord and His work and His providence. Now imagine, for a moment, ladies, that you're Abigail. 
Could you imagine what it would be like to be married to a guy like this? After you imagine that for a minute, I want you to go home and bake your husband a pie. Because your husband compares very, very preferably to Nabal. Imagine the providence that God put Abigail in with this man. And so with brief simplicity, ten days later, God strikes Nabal dead. And it's, it's so simply and shortly conveyed, it's almost like God is saying to David, why were you so worried? How unnecessary was all your noise about this? I'm in charge. I can take care of this. It's God reminding us that he is sovereign. And there's another reminder here for us in the justice of God because those who are on the edge of a judgment like Nabal are those who most often do not see the judgment coming. Nabal thought he was fine. He wasn't thinking about David. And worse than that, he wasn't even thinking about God. And so we would do good to remember that the providence of God ultimately brings judgment on sin. So what then can we do? Well, we must flee from sin. We must run to Jesus, the one who takes our sin and our judgment on himself. That is our only hope. There's no hope in ignoring a judgment to come. The only hope we have is to run to the one who has taken the judgment and paid the penalty. We see the triumph of God's providence in his justice. But finally, we also see the triumph of God's providence in his mercy. Again, can you imagine Abigail's life? And now, by God's providence, she's free. She's no longer bound to the fool. And more than that, David now takes her as his wife. Now, I will confess, ladies, this is not the most romantic proposal you will ever read. I don't advise young men to use this one. Hey, come over here, be my wife. Come up with something better than that. But the substance of it is that her life has been completely turned around. She is no longer under the thumb of Nabal, the fool. She is now with one David who is faithful, who trusts the Lord, and who will care for her. We see this mercy to Abigail. And we also see the mercy of the Lord's providence to David even beyond that. Now, sometimes we miss this because at the end of this chapter, David's still on the run with 600 men. But what we need to know is that God's providence is not designed to give you your best life now. Too often we judge the success of our faith by the success of our life. And the Lord has shown David that he is weak and he needs the Lord. And that is a mercy and a grace 
and a blessing. He's shown David, Paul puts it this way. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He's saying to David, don't trust yourself. I know you've won victories. I know you think you've got it together. But you've got to trust me and me alone. And this providence also shows that the only that only the Lord can establish his kingdom. Think about this kingdom being established. Saul couldn't establish it because he wouldn't obey God's word. Samuel couldn't establish it. He would have picked a second Saul. David can't establish it. He would be a murderer with blood guilt. The only one who can establish the kingdom is the Lord himself. It is Jesus who shows us that the path of victory is in enduring the insults and enduring the hostility of the Sauls and the Nabals of the world. This is how we are to live as believers. Aware that the Lord is at work in our lives. That His providence is bringing all things together for good. All things according to His will. And in that, we can find the greatest comfort we would ever need. Let's pray.